If you could take your seats, please. We're going to get started. We are continuing our Advent series today, and uh, our series has been built around the themes associated with the Advent wreath and candles, and uh, we've learned that uh, actually this current configuration and the themes is something started by a missionary in Germany uh, about uh, 150 years ago or so, that's about right, Uh, and it was a way to uh, help the children uh, patiently wait for Christmas and learn about the key themes of Christmas. And so each week is a different theme. We, we started off with uh, hope. Phil Lather brought us a message on hope from the lives of Simeon and Anna as they hoped in the Lord and waited for him. And we talked about love. And we learned about the love of God for us, the amazing love of God for us in Christ, the same love that they share among the Trinity, we are invited in and we receive, which is just fantastic. We learned about joy, the joy of heaven. And when we see with heaven's eyes, we know heaven's joy. Uh, This Sunday, we're going to talk about peace, the fourth Sunday in Advent. We get to light the final candle Friday. And so for today's theme from Scripture on peace, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look at the story of the Magi, the visit of the Magi. It's actually not just the story of the Magi, though that often gets the accent. It's really a story of two kings. The Magi are worshipers of one of the kings. So let's take a look at this this story in Matthew chapter 2. We'll start with verse 1 and go from there. But before we do that, let's pray and ask God to speak to us. Ultimately, we want to hear from him as we prepare our hearts for Christmas. So let's pray. Lord, we, we come before you and we, we confess our need for you. Lord, how we need you in every way. Lord, we need to hear your word. We live by your word. Your word is not simply content, uh, but it is life to us. By your word, you created the universe, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and has changed everything. And, Lord, you continue to speak through your word. Your word will last forever, though everything else might fade and fall. You and your word and those who believe your word will last forever. And we thank you for that. So, Lord, we ask you to come and speak to us. I pray you'd help me to serve your precious people and serve your purposes, Lord, as I preach. Lord, I I know I need you in every way. I cannot do anything apart from you. So I look to you. I thank you for your provision in Christ and the gifts of the Spirit. And now come speak to your people and magnify your name. Prepare our hearts for Christmas and the wonder that God became a man to redeem us, to fulfill all righteousness, to magnify his Father. We thank you and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. 
When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warmed in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's word, Matthew chapter 2. Well, we are all, I'm sure, familiar, most of us at least, familiar with this Christmas story familiar with all different aspects of it. And there's a lot in this story. There's a lot going on here that Matthew is communicating and God through Matthew. There's different aspects of what we could talk about. The main point, I think, and what Matthew's getting at here is he wants us to understand who this child is that's being born. And so he tells the story of what happened and chooses to include the elements under the hand of God that would highlight the reality of who this child is, and, and, and that reality here and through the Gospel of Matthew is that this child is the king of kings. That's the point. He is the king of kings. And so we see in this passage a contrast with another king, Herod, with the real king. The Magi's role in this is really they are coming to offer worship to a king. They come looking for the one who is the chosen king, the king of kings. They would have understood from Scripture most likely Uh, and their practice of astronomy and astrology that went with it, that God was doing something special. Something special was happening, that there was a king who was born, and they came to worship this king, recognizing he was more than a normal king. He was the king of kings. So Matthew wants us to understand that, and his one of the major themes in his gospel is the fact that Jesus is the king who comes to bring the kingdom. We spent time uh, over the summer going through... The Sermon on the Mount, which is really uh, a teaching on what it is to live under the king, what it looks like to have him as our king. And so this story is to help us see this king. And in telling the story, Matthew poignantly contrasts the king, Jesus, with the evil king, Herod. There is a stark contrast here highlighting the difference between a worldly king an evil king, a king of men and of this world with the king of kings. King Herod comes to bring chaos. King Jesus comes to establish his eternal reign of everlasting peace. One king comes for chaos. One king comes for peace. One king is dead and gone and forgotten. One king is to reign forever and ever and ever. Let's talk about that rain this morning. That's what I want to highlight and 
Let's talk about this reign of peace. I want to talk about the peace that he, co- that he brings as the king of kings. I want to learn about that peace. I want to take time to talk about the promise of peace from the Old Testament. Because that's the context here. What is said in Matthew is said in the context of the entirety of Scripture. So I want to talk about the, the promise of peace. Then I want to talk about what I call the paradox of peace. Because one could read this and hear about the peace promise and then say, wait a second, it doesn't make sense. Even the way that he came is not really amidst peace. And then we know the rest of the story. His life was a life of turmoil. Where is the peace? And then if I look at my own life, here's a king who came to bring peace, yet my life is full of turmoil. Where is this peace? We live in what's called the paradox of peace. A paradox is is when you have two statements that are both true but seem to contradict one another. So there is this paradox of peace, and I want to talk about that. I think it's very important for us to understand the paradox of peace, what Scripture teaches us about this peace. And then we're going to take time to talk about the practice of peace, the promise, the paradox, and the practice of peace. This wonderful section of Scripture, again, sits in the context of the entire Bible. Matthew writes, understanding the whole Old Testament. The Bible is really not a book. It's, it's, it is in a book form, but it's really a library. It's a library of books. It's a library of books, each book reflecting a different experience, a different truth of God that's highlighted, uh, different circumstances. The same God, the same author, though, in all of them. So it's a, a picture, a library full of books by a, an outstanding author. That's what the Bible is. And because he's the most incredible author there is, the books all tie together. There's central themes. There's a beginning. There's a middle. There's an end. There's a conclusion. That's what this book is. It's a library. And if we're going to pull one book off the shelf, the book of Matthew, we are best served to understand the rest of the library. So let's take some time to look at the promise of peace in Scripture. This promise of peace, the promise of this kingdom that would bring peace. And the theme of the kingdom that would bring peace is throughout Scripture. We could start and read from from the beginning to the end and see these themes even Adam is placed in a garden that's a royal garden of sorts, and he is a king of sorts meant to rule over the world. We know that he abdicated that role. He rebelled and fell, and mankind with him from this role as king over the worlds. We see the story go, and we see God calling people. Mankind falls from this. Again and again, God wants to set up his kingdom. We blow it. We fall. God pursues us. So he pursues Abraham and Jacob. We see Moses used to deliver the people, to bring the people to himself. We see David brought in as the king, who was to be, in many ways, the fulfillment of God's plan for a God-centered kingdom, relating to him, with him in their midst. Yet we know the story with David, as great as it was. David himself failed, and his line failed. Tragic, tragic story. And as we follow the story along, though, we see even amidst terrible, awful failure and falling, after 400 years of rebellion, gross rebellion and rejection of God, God in his patience endures, but finally brings judgment on the people. They are, they are exiled, foreign nations who have no regard for God, who have no knowledge of the promises and don't care about it, come in, and they ruin the kingdom. And they bring the people into exile. And God himself ordains this, and yet amidst it all, he uses his prophets to speak to his people the promise of peace. And so some of the best and most amazing promises of the kingdom of peace come amidst this terrible situation of the rebellion of God's people. So uh, Chris read Isaiah 9 this morning. Isaiah prophesies amidst the rebellion of God's people of this peace. Let's read that again. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest. He's speaking this to people who are not knowing joy. As they are glad when they divide spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be on upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and of the peace there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What a wonderful promise of peace that God would bring to a people who were experiencing anything but peace. Another section of Scripture, and we could visit a lot of the promises of, of peace in Scripture, but another section of Scripture is from Daniel. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel is in exile. He's away from the kingdom. He's under a king who is a foreign, godless king. And yet he trusts the Lord. And he serves the Lord there. He waits on the Lord. And the Lord speaks to him about these promises, some wonderful promises in Daniel. And the situation in chapter 2 is that Daniel and his friends have become uh, uh, officials in the government. They are well-respected, very young, well-respected. And the king has, King Nebuchadnezzar has this troubling dream. And it keeps him up, and it's recurrent. And he wants someone to interpret it. The thing is, is he tells his guys, I'm not going to tell you the dream. You've got to tell me the dream. If you're really prophetic, you need to tell me the dream, and then tell me what it means. And no one can, no one can do that, except for Daniel. And Daniel comes not giving himself the credit, but giving God the credit. God is the one who knows. God is the one who gives dreams and interprets dreams. And God grants him the revelation of the dream and its meaning. And so that's where we jump in here, listening to Daniel's interpretation of the dream given to Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king up to that date. And he says, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man and beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. A lengthy passage, but an important one. Without getting into what those other bronze and silver and iron kingdoms represent, the point I want to highlight is that while this statue that represented the kingdoms of the world stood a stone cut out not by human hands, comes and crashes on that statue. And, and it gets demolished to the point of fine dust, and it blows away, never to be seen again. And yet that rock becomes, grows into a mountain, and the mountain fills the whole earth. This is the kingdom that Christ has come and established and will fulfill. And it is very clear that God has sent his son, to establish this kingdom of peace. 
And that he would conquer, the Prince of Peace would conquer all other kingdoms and grow his kingdom until it becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. That is the promise, the sure promise of peace from Scripture. And that is the context to Matthew chapter 2 and the theme in Matthew of the kingdom of God. But you may ask, when I read Matthew 2, I don't quite see this kingdom of peace. I, I see something else. I see a baby in a manger. I see a baby born to parents so poor that they couldn't pay for a nice place to stay or whatever, or who, who is, has to stay in a cave and has to be put in a manger, actually because there was no place in the inn. I see, uh, I see a, a little baby whose life is threatened, who has to, who has to be taken uh, to flee from Herod. I see Herod. I see evil Herod. Herod the king. He's the guy who's the king here. He's the king, and he is, is evil. And he hears of the Magi, and, and they want to go find this king, and he gets upset, and he sends the Magi, and, and he wants to destroy this king. And, and I see that this king, Jesus, has to flee, and then Herod goes and he kills all the children, all the boys, two years old and under, in Bethlehem in the surrounding area. And I see that he's called a Nazarene, which is a derogatory term. He should be called a Nazarene. He should, he should be despised and rejected of men, is essentially what Matthew is saying. Where's the kingdom of peace? Where's this full and promised kingdom? Well, this is the paradox of peace. This is the reality of how the peace, how the kingdom is built amidst the kingdoms of this world. The reality that as this mountain comes, it comes amidst a world that is full of Herods. The reality that God in His wisdom has so designated things that the, the kingdom would come and it would grow amidst false kings. The reality is that there are two kingdoms present right now in this time between the first advent of Christ and the second. There are two kingdoms in the world. There is the kingdom of Herod. There is the kingdom of Christ. And they are coexistent right now. There is the kingdom of chaos. There is the kingdom of brokenness. There is the kingdom of sin. There is the kingdom of hatred of God in all its varying degrees. And there is the kingdom of Christ. And there is influence and intermingling. But there, there are these two kingdoms. And we see this paradox not only in Matthew 2, but we see it really throughout Scripture. For Scripture is the story of the reality of the two kingdoms, is it not? Right in the beginning, we have Abel and we have Cain. You follow the story along, we have the people of God, we have the people who reject God and oppose the people of God. That's the story throughout Scripture. Through and through, we, we see this reality, this paradox from, re, from Genesis to Revelation. In Revelation, we see the people of God who are persecuted by the beast, the beast persecuting the elect in Revelation. So right up to the very end, right from the very beginning, Cain and Abel to the beast and the elect, there are these two kingdoms. There is this paradox of peace, and we must understand we must understand this if we are to understand the Christian life. If we are to understand how the peace of God works. We must understand that there are two kingdoms. One that's not of peace. One that is of eternal peace. Coexistent side by side. And we can see that because we, we, we can see that throughout Scripture. We see it in the life of Christ, don't we? Here is this king. This prince of peace who comes. Who is born in poverty. Raised in obscurity, ministers under adversity, understood wrongly, crucified mercilessly, suffered for sins completely. He went through a life of turmoil, poverty, obscurity, misunderstood, rejected. He was a man of sorrows, familiar with pain. That's his life. And that was the promise of his life. He is a man of sorrows. He knew turmoil. He knew rejection. Yet he was called the Prince of Peace. 
We learn some more about why these two coexist by looking through Scripture and looking at Isaiah as one place, Isaiah 53. I think we have this to show, Isaiah 53. I'll start in verse 3, speaking of the Savior. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken, for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. Isaiah 53. Before there is a crown for the prince of peace, there is a cross for the man of sorrows. Before there is a crown for the Prince of Peace, there is a cross for the man of sorrows, for he brings his kingdom of everlasting peace through bearing sin and living as the man of sorrows. He himself is the ultimate illustration of the paradox of peace. And he resolves this paradox for us, for it is through suffering, it is through enduring sin, and pain for sin on the cross. It is through these things that He makes atonement for His people and makes a way for His people to know the peace of God. On that cross, He died for the sins of His people. He bore the penalty for those sins. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. It was the will of the Lord in His wisdom. Together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit planning out salvation... It was the will of God that the Son would bear the sins of His people and be crushed for our sin. That the Prince of Peace would be the man of sorrows so that He might bring us ultimate peace, everlasting peace. And the core of our peace is not simply peace of a sense of no more wars and, and, and blessing, though that's part of it. The core of it is this, that we are reconciled with God through Christ. Romans 1 Romans 5.1 says, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Prince of Peace had to suffer. Had to be a man of sorrows to provide for eternal peace for us. And His death finished the work and the Father approved and raised Him from the dead on the third day. Approved it proved what He had done, and the work of salvation was complete on the cross. And it was, it was proven satisfactory and complete through the resurrection. And so our peace is already established. The kingdom has come through the Son, through what He has done, through the good news of the Gospel. It has come, and it is ours. And if you have responded to that good news in faith, in turning from sin, that, and, and there's no way to have faith without turning, and no way to ha- turn without faith, 
They go together. If that has been your experience, then that is your payment for sin. His death is your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. You already have that peace with God as a gift by grace through faith, and it will never be taken from you. So you have that peace. The kingdom has come for you. The stone has been thrown, and it's growing. Growing in your life, growing in the people of God. The the mountain grows and grows. More people come to faith. More people are transformed. It grows and grows. But it grows amidst the reality of the two kingdoms. Kingdom of Christ alongside the kingdom of Herod. This is so important for us to understand that it is indeed, the kingdom indeed has come and will be completed when Christ returns. But the kingdom exists amidst another kingdom, and that is our reality. That is how God has designed it, and we'll talk more about that in a few minutes, the whys of that. But this is the reality we live in. We live amidst this. We live in these two kingdoms. And these two kingdoms are opposed to one another. And it's not just external. At times, the two-kingdom struggle is in here because sin remains in us even in this time. There is the ways of sin in us and the struggle, and yet the kingdom of God is in us, breaking forth, displacing the kingdom of this world, even in us. But there are these two kingdoms. Augustine called them two cities. He says there are two cities. The city of the godly, and the city of the ungodly. These have been with us since the human race began, and they will continue till the end of the world. For the time being, as far as outward appearances go, they are indistinguishable. At times they're mixed together. We can't always see clearly the differences. They're indistinguishable, but their aspirations are very different. On the day of judgment, they will be separated bodily for all to see. So we live now in this reality. These two kingdoms. That is why, that is why bad things happen at times to seemingly good people. That is why there's death and sickness. That is why dear friends are suddenly taken from us. That is why at times, despite all our efforts to love our neighbors and preach the gospel and influence our community and culture, Sometimes our efforts are spurned and rejected, and the result is persecution. There are two kingdoms. Over 100 million of your brothers and sisters right now live amidst a real and ever-present threat of serious persecution. 100 million of your brothers and sisters right now live in places where they can be harmed or even killed for their faith. There are two kingdoms. The kingdom of Herod is still very active, and I think probably more active than ever. Yet the kingdom of Christ is very active. And I think more active than ever. The mountain is growing. It's having its way. But the kingdoms of this world oppose it. And when we talk about these realities, first I want us to know that it's clear in Scripture. This is what the, the reality we live in. And we have to be careful. We have to be careful to not misunderstand that the kingdom of Christ comes amidst the kingdom of Herod. And it has been the mistake of God's people throughout the ages to want the fullness of the kingdom now and to have every evil, every, every hard thing put away. It was the mistake of the disciples, was it not? They were expecting Jesus to come after his resurrection and set the kingdom up right then. What did Jesus tell them to do? Go, be my witnesses. In other words, we're going to be building the kingdom, guys, but not in the way you think. Go, be my witnesses. Build the kingdom that way amidst persecution. We need to understand that. And at times we, we, we don't understand and we struggle. And it's like, why, Lord? Why evil? Why pain? Why these things? And the first answer to that is because that's God's way in Scripture. It's clear. And we see it most of all in the Son. The Son lived amidst suffering. And He calls us as His people to follow Him and to experience the peace we have, but experience it amidst turmoil, the turmoil of our own temptation, the turmoil of our own failings and fallings, the turmoil of the failings around us, the turmoil of persecution perhaps and disappointment. 
to live and experience the peace of God that overcomes the world. He calls us to this. He calls us to live in this paradox of peace, standing on the peace we have in Christ, living for the establishment of that peace. What he started, he will finish. He will right all wrongs. He will vindicate. He will glorify His name. He will finish His work. But we live in this time, looking back to the establishment of the kingdom through the death and resurrection of Christ for us, the guarantee, and we look forward to the finishing of that. But amidst struggle and turmoil, and that's what it is to be a Christian in this life. There are deeper questions we can ask about that, too. You may ask why. Why do it? What, I mean, what, what is the purpose? Yeah, I know it's, 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 how, it's how you've designed it, but, but why, why would you do it this way? Why not just when Christ came, just have the kingdom come right away and, and the kingdom of Herod gone? Or, or why not when we come to Christ, make it so that we're just glorified right away? Wouldn't that be wonderful? If we, you, the day you believe, all of a sudden, poof! All sin is gone. You have a glorified body and, and, and you're no longer sinful and you just walk around like there is in Christ in your glory uh, all the time. I mean, we, we would love that, wouldn't we? But why? Why let sin remain? Why let your church be weak at times? Why are 100 million brothers and sisters persecuted? Why, Lord? That's a heavy question. And not something I can answer quickly and easily. It's very deep. But I want to boil it down for us because I think it's important for us to understand this. And if you can bear with me in it, I think it will serve you in the end. Bear with me as I do my best to explain it and we get to see God's purposes. I think it boils down to this. That the goodness and the greatness of God And all of who He is, His great love, His great mercy, His great wisdom, His great holiness, His great justice, His great patience, His kindness, all of who He is, all the dimensions of who He is in His goodness and His greatness, all of that, all of His characteristics in all these ways is most powerfully shown and experienced against the backdrop of evil. Now, evil is not something God created. Evil is not an entity to be created. Evil is the absence of an entity. Darkness is not an entity. What is darkness? The absence of light. Light is an entity. God made all things good. But he made beings, both celestial and earthly beings, with choice. He made free moral agents, and part of their choice is the ability to choose to reject the good, and thus create evil. God sovereignly chose that and knew what was going to happen, even ordained it in ways we don't understand, some ways where he had nothing to do with the evil that was done, but was still sovereign over it. And he did this so that the glory of his goodness and kindness might be shown and experienced and fulfilled most perfectly. Now, there are mysteries here we don't understand. God is not a man. We cannot understand how and why God would do it in every way. But in his great goodness and glory, he knew knew there was a purpose for evil. There was a purpose to shine his goodness and glory against this backdrop. And to cause it to be shown and experienced most vividly. Now, here's where we make mistakes. We think God must be complicit in evil in some way. Or why would he do that? And Scripture never, ever asserts that. And Scripture paints a picture of God most vividly in Christ that shows us that he himself has entered into our reality beyond anything we would ever know in suffering the greatest evil, the crucifixion, of Christ on the cross. He has borne sin. He has suffered more than any of us have ever suffered. So in the plan of allowing evil, 
permitting evil and even using it for greater good, he knew he would be entering into this in the most vivid, fullest way. That he himself would be subject to this evil. That he would bear the sins of countless number of his people on that cross. That he would suffer himself for that evil. In a sense, he himself would suffer the greatest evil. And in that, to express and show the greatest love, the greatest wisdom that he has, that he is. So we can never take away from that the reality that he has entered in and he has been the one who has loved. He has been the man of sorrows. He has been the one who's compassionate and kind and gracious. And so there's dimensions of his character that we will never, never fully grasp. So let us not make the mistake of misjudging the character of God in all this. He's perfect. He's glorious. And he's wise. So how do we know the depth of His love? How do we know the depth of His love? Because it's shown against the backdrop of the awful suffering of Christ for awful sin. That's how we know love. It's shown. It's magnified through that reality. How do we know his, the depth of His commitment to perfect justice? Because it's shown by the price that was paid for justice. The death of His Son for sin. That's how we know His justice. How do you know the riches of His grace and mercy? It's shown because He ransomed and rescued His sworn enemies. How do we know His patience and faithfulness? Because He cares for and preserves His sheep. God is magnified through our weakness. I don't know all the reasons why we're not glorified right away, but I know one of the reasons why. In our weakness, we are strong. In our weakness, we see the goodness and glory of God. And yeah, we may fail, we may fall, but we'll make it. Why? Because He's faithful. Because He's good. Because the one that's in His hand, He will never let go. So the depth of His kindness, faithfulness, mercy is shown by allowing sin to remain and yet preserving us and working His purposes. It's better ultimately, in the long run, that it's this way, that it's our way. Now, there are mysteries there. There's, there's the hidden counsels of God. We don't understand it all. And I don't, I'm not attempting to answer it all, but try to represent Scripture as best I can. For Romans 8.28 says clearly, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. How many things? All things All things work together for good. So even the failings and the evil remain evil. They don't ever become good. They're not good, but they work together for good, greater good, for those who are calling to His purpose. Ephesians 1, God works all things according to the counsel of His will. And so He has established this paradox of peace. And we live in it. And he's sovereign over it. And every single thing that happens, ultimately, he directs and ordains. And is good. And is our all in all. He's not distant. That's the mistake we make sometimes, too. We hear these things and we think, well, God is some passive, you know, distant guy turning the, turning the machine. Not at all. He has entered in to our suffering. He is with us. It's amazing to think about that. When he went to the grave of Lazarus, did he say, well, you know, I knew this was going to happen. You know, I got this. I'm going to raise him from the dead. And then I'm going to die on the cross and, and, and rise again. And Lazarus is going to be fine. So stop your weeping, would you? Shut up, everybody. He didn't do that. He knew all this. This is the wonder of God. He knows it all. He knows his purposes. And yet he weeps at the graveside of Lazarus. That's who he is. He's glorious. We can trust him. We don't understand it all. But in the end, we will see this was very good. Your plan was wise. And he shows us the wonder of the peace that he brings through the paradox of peace. He shows us the preciousness of peace through the turmoil we face. And as we hold on to him, saw it this week for us, for Maureen, for Leo. 
Last Sunday, Leo was here with us. His smiling face, his sense of humor, his desire to worship and grow. I'm going to miss him coming up after many messages, just wanting to be prayed for, just wanting to grow. He would say to me often, Paul, can you pray for me? I want to learn these things. I want to be a deacon someday. And I did nothing but encourage him in that. He was here with us last Sunday and suddenly became sick. Sunday into Monday, went to the hospital on Tuesday and was gone on Wednesday afternoon. And it was hard, it was shocking and sad. But as hard as it was, we were able to say goodbye to Leo and peace. Because three years ago, God worked in Leo's life and drew him to himself out of a hard background. A very wonderful marriage to his wife, but previous to that, a very hard background. Opened up his eyes to see the Savior and to trust in him. And and life wasn't necessarily easy for Leo, but God preserved him. God preserved him through many means, using friends who encouraged him and reminded him of Christ. God preserved him so that on that sickbed, Maureen and I and all of us could say goodbye to Leo, even with joy, knowing that he was rescued from his sin and he was going to receive his inheritance. That doesn't mean it's easy. The Savior still cried at Lazarus' grave, and it is right for us to cry. Death is wrong. But one has come who's overcome death, overcome death for us. And so there's peace, even amidst this reality of turmoil. And that peace will be finally and fully established when he returns and finishes it all. Amen. Well, if the band could come up, and I'll just quickly touch on the practice of peace. not left myself much time, but I want us to just quickly touch on this. And I, throughout this message, we've been talking about it. How do we practice this? How, how does it work its way out? I think you've seen, Lord willing, as we've gone through the truths, how it works its way out. out. First and foremost, through faith. We experience the peace of God through faith. We live by faith. Faith comes from the Word of God. The Word of God tells us Christ has done it. He's paid for sins. Our sins are paid for. All of them. Past, present, and future. And He's been raised from the grave as the first fruits, guaranteeing what is to come. We look back by faith. We stand by faith on that truth. And by faith we look forward to the finishing of that. We know that He's going to finish it. And as we walk by faith in this life, there is a reward for us. As we endure, as we hold on, as we struggle, as we fall down, as we help one another up, God is pleased with those things. There's a reward. We look forward. We live by faith. Faith is so important. We're to nurture our faith in the truths of God. Isaiah 26, 3, You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Jesus said in John 16, I have said these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world by faith. And then we spread peace by proclaiming the good news of peace to others. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called sons of God. How do we chiefly make peace? By proclaiming the peace that Christ has won on the cross and through his resurrection to people so that they might know this ultimate peace. Paul tells us to equip ourselves with shoes made ready for the, to proclaim the gospel of peace. And the central part of our armor as Christians, our equipment, is the, are these shoes that we wear that are the gospel of peace that make us move and bring the good news to others. We establish peace through evangelism. We establish peace through our lifestyle, how we live. We live in light of this peace. And even though we live in a world that is full of turmoil and there are struggles, there is the reality of the kingdom that is growing and growing. God has promised us this peace. He has promised us this kingdom. He has promised to preserve the kingdom and to grow the kingdom even amidst the opposition. And so we confidently live in that peace 
spreading that peace and building that kingdom and how we live, loving others, loving one another, loving those around us, loving our community, seeking to influence our culture for good, all these things we continue to do, knowing that that mountain will grow and grow and grow, even amidst opposition. So we're confident. As I read in 1 Corinthians 15, we, we, we are steadfast. We don't lose hearts. We keep on laboring because our labor in the Lord is not in vain. The Prince of Peace has come. He's come amidst a world of trouble. The King of Kings was born under an evil king. He has come amidst and through this paradox of peace. He's fulfilled the promise of peace and He will fulfill it through our lives when He returns. And so we put our faith in Him and we live in that peace. We spread the good news of that peace. We, we live in the kingdom in a life of peace and truth in Him. And He will return and finish the work. This is the peace that He's come. He's come to bring this peace, to bring the kingdom. Let us place our faith in Him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You for the peace that You brought, that in You we have peace with God. And that you are coming to finish that peace and you are using the turmoil and the troubles we face to teach us and to grow us so that we can live even more steadfastly in your peace and make it known even more effectively. We thank you for the peace that you bring. Help us to stand on it. And Lord, through all these things, be greatly glorified, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.